Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for Episode 1 on December 9, 2009. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we will explore news and information government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at www.airmedtoday.com and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash airmedicaltoday and finally on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash airmedtoday. The podcast will also be indexed on iTunes in the near future. Today's guest is Joe Tai, CEO and head coach of Values Coach and also the first president of the American Society of Hospital-Based EMS Air Medical Services, or ASHBEAMS, which is now called the Association of Air Medical Services, or AIMS. Before I introduce Joe, I want to provide some background on the Air Medical Today podcast, since this is episode one. I have been working in the air medical community since 1988, when I was the Assistant Administrator for Ambulatory and Emergency Services at Inova Fairfax Hospital in Northern Virginia. Through positions of President and CEO of West Michigan Air Care in Kalamazoo, Michigan, Associate Administrator of Emergency Services at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, and as a partner and CEO of MedServe Management Services in Kansas City, Missouri, I have had the opportunity to work with numerous air medical programs around the country. I also served on the board of directors for the Association of Air Medical Services for 10 years in two different regional positions and twice elected for an at-large position. From 2006 through 2008, I served as the president of the association. I got the idea for Air Medical Today when I was following the NTSB hearings in January 2009. As like all of us, I was looking for a way to get up-to-date stories on the hearings. From that experience, I started posting through Twitter and then Facebook news and information about the air medical community during the off hours from my regular work. Since scoring full-time with the Eero Podcast Network in September of this year, I have refined the search algorithms and have semi-automated the postings of Air Medical Today, which now come very close to being posted as the news happens. I have been working on podcasts through the Eero Podcast Network for sports that I am interested in, which include Nordic skiing and bicycling. Links to the Berkey Web Today podcast about the American Berkebiner ski race in northern Wisconsin and the Kansas Cyclist podcast regarding bicycling in Kansas and surrounding states can be found on my company website at epn.ero.com. If you have listened to my other podcast, you know that I like to feature original music 
and Air Medical Today is certainly no exception. The theme song for Air Medical Today is called Track 5, and it is by Stanley Reeves, a Chicago musician. There will be a short interview of Stanley at the end of the podcast, where I'll provide more information about this wonderful artist. I hope you enjoy Air Medical Today and become a regular subscriber. To leave feedback regarding the podcast, or if you are interested in becoming a sponsor, please send an email to webmaster at airmedtoday.com. You can also leave a voicemail by calling 206-350-0278. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. The big story that every American is following is healthcare reform. Dr. Dan Hankins, current president of Ames, as you all know from the latest Ames News and Views, places much prominence in his column on health care reform. And it is one of the biggest public policy issues that is facing our community. As of today, December 9th, here is the latest on health care reform. After days of secret talks, Senate Democrats tentatively agreed Tuesday night, September 8th, to drop a government-run insurance option from sweeping health care legislation. This is a concession to the Democratic Party moderates whose votes are critical to passage of the bill. On Monday, progressive Democrats were pitching a measure that would allow Americans aged 55 to 64 to buy into the Medicare program. Both these stories are found at Modern Healthcare. Also reported in Modern Healthcare on Tuesday is a new report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which shows the U.S. spent about 16% of its gross domestic product on health care in 2007, which was more than the organization's average of 8.9%. Following the U.S. were France, Switzerland, and Germany, which respectively spent 11%, 10.8%, and 10.4% of their GDP on health care services. The House uh, passed a three-month Federal Aviation Administration extension on Tuesday by a voice vote. The bill, H.R. 4217, would extend aviation taxes and the authority to spend the money raised from those taxes on FAA programs through the end of March, giving Congress additional times to reach an agreement on a long-term FAA reauthorization. The current extension expires at the end of December. And that story was from HAI. At their meeting, the Horry County, South Carolina Council members unanimously passed a resolution recognizing the three Carolina Life Care crew members who died on September 25, 2009. Pilot Patrick Walters, flight paramedic Claxton Dove, and flight nurse Diana Connor died when their medical helicopter crashed near the Georgetown County Airport after dropping off a patient at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. A permanent memorial with their names, which was presented to a group of life care employees at the meeting, will be set in concrete on the landing pad at the Conway Airport. The memorial will be dedicated at a special service in January. 
That story is from South Carolina now. In New Jersey, the Monmouth Ocean Hospital Service Corporation from Neptune, New Jersey, is getting a new helicopter service provider. The Monarch One Air Ambulance Service will continue to be provided as negotiations with a new aircraft operator are finalized, said Vincent Robbins, President and Chief Operating Officer at Monmouth. Robbins declined to disclose the name of the new company before the contract is signed. He said he expects that deal to replace the PHI Air Medical Service that operated Monic One will be reached without the need to use other air medical providers during the transition time. PHI was scheduled to end its service November 30, 2009, but the contract was extended for one month. The contract with PHI's replacement is expected to be signed by Friday of this week or Monday of next week at the latest. Like PHI, the new company will work from Robert J. Miller Air Park in Berkeley. That story is from APP.com. Some interesting news from NASA. They are testing a new helicopter safety technology. Uh, Sotoris Kellis, while at Langley, developed a lightweight, collapsible, Kevlar-based device to aid in the cushioning of landings by astronaut-manned space capsules. It became evident the same idea could serve to improve the safety of helicopter crashes. NASA tested the design on a U.S. Army-donated aircraft with very good results. An additional test is going to be run without the device to, to compare the results. That story is from vtolblog.com. And from England, uh, the board of the London Air Ambulance Charity, Virgin Hems London, in London, England, that sacked Chief Executive David Philpott after he raised concerns about the alleged malpractice by some trustees, has reportedly commissioned an independent review into the circumstances surrounding his dismissal. The trustee board refused to confirm or deny whether this was true, but Philpott said he had heard it even though no independent reviewer has approached him to give evidence as yet. The trustees have also agreed to grant Philpott an appeal against his dismissal, and he has sent them a letter setting out his grounds for that appeal. In this, he claims his dismissal was unfair because it arose from him bringing to the attention of the trustees as a group, and some individual trustees in particular, possible criminal acts and failures of the charity to comply with its legal obligations. That story is from civilsociety.com.uk. Remember, these and other news stories can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. Today I am interviewing Joe Tai, who is the CEO of Values Coach, which provides consulting, training, and coaching on values-based leadership and cultural transformation for hospital, corporate, and association clients. The Values Coach course on the 12 core action values is called Graduate School for Life and has helped thousands of people bring about profoundly positive changes in their personal and professional lives. 
Joe earned a master's degree in hospital administration from the University of Iowa and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he was class co-president. He is the author or co-author of 11 books, including the international bestsellers Never Fear, Never Quit, A Story of Courage and Perseverance, and Your Dreams Are Too Small. His next book, All Hands on Deck, Building a Cultural of Ownership, will be published by Wiley Publishing in July 2010. Prior to founding Values Coach in 1994, Joe was Chief Operating Officer for a large community hospital. He was founding president of the Association of Air Medical Services and a leading activist fighting against unethical tobacco industry marketing practices. Joe's purpose is to help people re-spark the spirit of mission in their work and the spirit of adventure in their lives, and to help organizations tap into the invisible treasure of that spirit in the hearts of their people. Joe and his wife Sally have two adult children. They live on a small farmstead in Iowa, and their second home is a tent in the Grand Canyon where he takes frequent trips. Joe, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being my first guest on Air Medical Today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I thought since you were the first president of Ashbeams, now called Ames, that you would be the appropriate person to interview on episode uh, one. Before we talk about what you're doing now, please set the stage for our listeners on what the air medical community was like back in 1980. Who all was involved in the formation of the association, and what was the driving force for Ashbeams? being started? Well, you know, there was this sort of initial uh, surge in the number of air medical programs in the country. Initially, there were a few of them, you know, Denver, Houston. Um, and and I think at the University of Iowa, we were about the eighth one in the country. And at a, shortly thereafter, uh, Des Moines started one, Kansas City. Um, and, and so we had this surge uh, across the country, and pretty soon there were a hundred of them. And the leaders in some of the organizations um, got to talking about it. And actually, one of the early leaders was Carl Gills, who was at the program at Methodist in Des Moines. And we decided to have a meeting and, you know, talk about common interests. And then at a second meeting, um, we decided we really need to have an organization uh, that would bring people together to talk about common interests. Um, we did. We established, we incorporated as ASHBEAMS, the American Society of Hospital-Based Emergency Air Medical Services, a rather inelegant title, <laughs> um, which blessedly is shorter now. Um, and one of the, a couple of the things we took on early on, as AIMS is today, we were very concerned about safety. Um, one of the, the other things that we um, had pretty substantial conversations about, and I'm I'm not sure the extent to which it's still an issue. I think it's not as significant as it was back then. Is the difference between hospital-based and freestanding? Um, at the time, there was really no standard as as to who could staff an emergency helicopter, emergency fixed wing, you know, paramedic, nurse, doctor. Uh, there was a, a a range of everything. And, and, of course, the concern that we had was um, that there not be excessive proliferation of these services. And I think if you, know, if you had told us back then the numbers that we would have today, we would have been shocked. 
but it seems to be working out pretty well. Was the when you talk about non-hospital base, were those the public ones or were those actually private in 1980? A sum of each. Um, okay. You know, you had uh, you had some highway patrol services. There were some entrepreneurs starting up. There were some um, some joint ventures between hospitals and. I mean, there were some that were flying, you know, old Vietnam era Hueys. Um, so it was it was a real mix at the time. Yeah, well, I, you've actually hit the nail on the head of what uh, that is still. It, it probably is the biggest issue, uh, along with healthcare reform today, is, and it's really um, created quite a schism within the uh, uh, air medical community. Uh, because now the uh, independent or freestanding uh, services uh, are about 50%, or actually probably just slightly more than 50% of the total helicopters in service. And, of course, there's been a lot of consolidation um, in the industry. So that's interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that that was a, a big issue back then. Was it uh, involving uh, quality and standards? Is that what was driving it? Well, then as now, it was a couple things. At the top of the list, of course, was quality. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody's only flying once or twice a month or once or twice a week, uh, how do you make sure that they have adequate quality? Um, uh, there was also economics involved. You know, if you have two or three or four helicopter services serving one area, um, how do you pay for them all? How do you make it cost-effective? So those were the two issues, quality and, and economic feasibility. And, and, of course, you throw in a good dollop of uh, good old American competitive spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because at the time, too, even there was a lot of competition even among the hospital-based programs because uh, many cities, uh, the hospitals would, would do that competitively and start their own programs rather than uh, today you see a lot more consortium models. Yeah, yeah. It was very competitive. One of the things, you know, having served on the Ames board myself for 10 years, we always go back and say, well, why can't we do that? And it's always like, well, because we're incorporated in, in Iowa. So uh, tell us, it, uh, Ashbeam was incorporated because that's where, where you were as the first president. Is that right? Well, yeah. And uh, Carl Gills, who was the second president, really was an early leader. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, the two of us uh, sort of took it on, and um, as as I recall, actually Carl was pretty instrumental in getting the the paperwork done. And Des Moines is the capital, so that's where it was. Right. Well, was there um, disagreement with the initial members when you came together as an association? Was there some various opinions on what that uh, organization should look like, or was there pretty much? agreement to, to move forward? Oh, it was pretty 90%. I mean, 100% agreement to move forward. Probably the controversial issue uh, back then. And, you know, you're, keep in mind, you're talking about maybe 100 years ago. Uh, <laughs> the, the key issue was, uh, do we and to what extent do we establish standards and try to certify programs? And, of course, that was not something that was going to happen, you know, along the lines of designating trauma centers. Yes. And then also standards for our medical programs, which I know Ames had standards for many years until CAMES came into being. And then now the standards are the CAMES standards. So was that yeah. that was an, uh, an early project also of the association? 
Yeah, except um, uh, we were actually thinking about trying to certify, you know, designate levels like trauma center level one, two, or three. I see. Um, and, you know, at the time I was also president of the regional EMS council, and we did with a federal grant. In fact, a, a requirement of our grant was to designate trauma centers, and we did. And the day we did, uh, one of the hospitals sued not only the EMS council, but each of us as board members personally. So, you know, we, we love a good fight. So we wrote to the, uh, the government officials who had given us the grant requiring that we designate trauma centers and told them we've been sued. And uh, we'd like a letter from you just clarifying that this is a grant requirement of the grant. And we got back a letter withdrawing the requirement. <laughs> I see. But were they didn't be involved in a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. But were you so Joe, were you saying that uh for the aeromedical programs themselves, you were thinking of different designations, so a level one, two, or three for an aeromedical program? Well, I don't recall if we were actually gonna designate levels, but we were thinking of putting the uh ash beam stamp of approval on programs. And I see. Okay. We did not go ahead with that, at least not in my time. Yeah, the reason I asked that because that's been a sticking point uh recently is that, you know, some programs feel that they're operating more at a critical care level or, you know, level one if we call it that, and others at more of an ALS uh level. So could there be differences in reimbursement and uh you know for that? So interesting. Well, you know, very clearly, programs are operating at different levels. The question yes. is, should you recognize that in reimbursement, and who's going to make the call on what level you're at? Right. What What about uh, some of the political issues that were going on at the time, especially, you know, in government relations, or w- were there reimbursement challenges in the, the early years? Oh, yeah. Um, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think, as I said, I think we were the eighth program in the country, so we had to hash it out with Blue Cross. You know, some some people wanted to pay us as if we were just a regular ground-based ambulance company. Um, so yeah, there, and I'm sure we weren't the only ones. And I I think that's been more or less um, resolved now. But um, there were some pretty significant challenges in getting these things paid for early on. Right. And was did each individual program go about doing that, or was there uh, uh, action through government relations for the association to try to to change that reimbursement? Um, at least at the time I was involved, it was pretty much left to the individual program. Yeah, yeah, and then you could learn from each other. Yep. How long then were you involved uh, with Ash Beams, and um, did that? change as you changed uh, I, I know you were uh, in a position at the University of Iowa um, uh, hospital so how long did you stay involved with ash beams and what was your title at the time at the hospital when I started I was the director of EMS for the hospital um, and as I mentioned we had just started a new helicopter service um, as w- as well as uh, EMS training center and overland transportation. And, um, I was the first ash beams president. And then I was president emeritus, um, the year after. And so I was involved for about three or four years, one way or another. 
And then I left actually hospital administration in 83 to go back to business school at Stanford um, and really never got. And after that, I um, took a year off and I got involved starting another organization completely unrelated to uh, take on the evil bastards in the tobacco industry. And, and, and then from there, I went on to become chief operating officer of a big teaching hospital, which did not at the time have a helicopter service. So, you know, I really didn't get involved again. I see. Um, yeah, I was wondering with your, your master's degree when you did that. So that helps explain it. Um, who, one of the questions uh, I've always wondered is who came up with the uh, initial logo for Ash Beams and now Ames? Actually, that was my wife, Sally. We were were at home one night and uh, I told her I needed a logo. We were working on stationery and she she came up with that. And, uh, you know, I guess that that has stood the test of time. Yeah, it sure has. It's made up and it was pretty cool. Oh, that's great. That's that's a fun fact to know. Yeah, we did not have royalties on that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, good thing. Let's uh, move over and talk about your your current business called Values Coach. Um, you know, how, how did you make that transition in 1994 from hospital administrator, being a COO of a hospital, to what you're doing now with Values Coach? And um, I know you have an interest in values and corporate culture, but tell us about that change and that transition. Well, the short answer is that I was the COO of uh, Hospital of Massachusetts for five years, uh, moved on to Toledo um, for nine very short months, and I ended up being fired. And as it always is, it was the best thing that ever could have happened um, because I don't know that I would have started up. I don't know that I would have quit. It takes probably more courage than I would have had. But it really did force me to ask the question, well, okay, what am I here for? What do I like doing? What am I good at? Um, and it was not being a hospital administrator. I am now a recovering hospital administrator. <laughs> and so I started out putting on big conferences. I wrote a little book called Never Fear, Never Quit. Um, really wrote it for myself. Um, and uh, started speaking more and more. And uh, uh, after a few years really started getting interested in values and the role of values, both at a personal level and the the values that guide an organization. And so we created a whole course called the 12 Core Action Values. It's a a 60-module course on personal values. And that's really the heart and soul of what we do at Values Coach. And in the last maybe three years or so, um, we talk about the invisible architecture of an organization. And you know, it's really ironic. Um, executives put a lot of energy into designing the physical architecture, you know, this, the buildings that you can see. And much less um, attention is given to the things that really matter, things like the, the values. That's the foundation of the invisible architecture or the, the corporate culture um, or the, the emotional feel of working in the place. And the things that I as a patient or I as a customer or I as a new employee, the things that really determine how I feel about your organization, there's no blueprint for that stuff. And so we've been working more and more on how do you create a culture of ownership? How do you create a culture where people are really committed to the organization, engaged in their work, proud of being a part of what they do? 
Um, and that, that's really been a key focus for us in the last, oh, three years or so. So when, when you were a hospital administrator, were these things that you were thinking about at the time? Are these Not enough. Yeah, yeah. Which no. then, then drove, yeah. Because you have a lot of hospital clients now, right? You know, it's really funny. When I started Values Coach, I I thought we'll go out into the corporate world, and I didn't really think of hospitals for the, quite a while. And uh, it's almost like hospitals wormed their way back into the picture. And now, probably eighty percent of our work is with hospitals. Interesting. Our biggest client's a Fortune five hundred insurance company, or has been over the years. Um, but more and more, our work has been with hospitals and healthcare, and I see that continuing. Do you, uh, what do you find is the biggest difference in doing the work that you're doing now and from being a, a hospital administrator? Um, and then how has that helped you, uh, you know, in your current work? Well, the, the differences are enormous. Um, probably at the top of the list, just at a personal level, is I don't sit in boring meetings all day the way I used to. I don't have, you know, 6.30 meetings with surgeons and, and then, you know, 8 o'clock meetings that night with uh, volunteers or whatever. Right. Um, and I don't have, I felt like so much of the time that I spent in my uh, administration days um, was sitting in meetings. And now, you know, most of the time, most of my time, I feel like is spent creating or communicating uh, in more important ways. And, you know, that's not as much a reflection on the administration career path, perhaps, as it is on my own strengths or weaknesses. Well, I think, you uh, you know, I've come from the same background and having worked at hospitals and you feel the same way. I mean, there was days that I was in, you know, six, seven meetings. And then, you know, of course, with the advent of email and stuff, then you'd come back to your office at 536 and you'd have a hundred and some emails to deal with. Um, so it has, there's a lot of pressure, I guess. That, how has that helped you, that experience guide you in, in leading hospitals and helping them overcome and paying attention to the things that they should be paying attention to? I think the most important thing is that I really do have a, a feel for the heartbeat of a hospital. You know, I've right. spent 27 years um, working in uh, being involved in just about every department. And um, that's probably why uh, I feel like the values coach work is going to be more effective in a hospital than it would be in a sausage factory, you know, because I, I know um, I'm much more uh, intimately familiar with not just the operations, but the sort of people who work there, the kind of attitudes people have. Mm-hmm. It's on their mind. Well, you talked that you, you have other clients, and I know from looking at your website, you've got other non-healthcare-related uh, clients. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in healthcare that you've been able to pass on to non-hospital clients that they might not have seen? Well, I think that um, there'd be both a positive and a negative, and and I think there are lessons the other way as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the positive is that ideally in a hospital, people are there not just because it's the highest paying job they can get. They're working there because they really do have a sense of commitment to um, serving the patient and that they're there because there's a sense of calling. Um that is sometimes honored more in the breach than in the reality. Um, 
I think uh, sometimes the level of enthusiasm that you see in hospitals is much less than it should be when compared with many other organizations. You know, we've worked with insur big insurance companies where um, people seem to be much more enthusiastic about their work and much more committed to their um, organization than is the case sometimes in hospitals. Um, and of course, if you've ever been to a Mary Kay rally or an Amway rally and seen whatever you think of uh, their products or their organizations, just to feel the sort of energy and enthusiasm that you that you have in in rallies like that, and I often think, whoa, what if what if we could inject that into the workplace? Um, it it would be an amazing thing. Um, people would not go home at the end of the day complaining about how work sucks and then you die. Do you think the the driver for that is is it a difference between not for profit for profit or uh, is it money that's driving that? What is the difference? We've worked with for profit and not for profit hospitals, and at the operating at the floor level, you cannot tell the difference. You know, mm. trying to get a decision made, no difference. Uh, commitment to doing the right thing for people. Um, in my experience, anyway, there's no difference. Um, we have worked with for-profit hospitals where the patient is first and center. Um, I, I really don't think that that's an issue. And, you know, a nonprofit hospital has to make a profit. Right. Absolutely. Just, uh, they don't have shareholders that they have to, um, they have to uh, make happy. Well, what I was trying to get at, though, is you talked about the enthusiasm level. Let's say, you know, Mary Kay compared to a hospital. Why are employees more enthusiastic? What is the, what's driving that? Well, it, ultimately, it's leadership. You know, if, mm. you, if you have an organization, and, you know, there, there are hospitals that have great leadership, and people really are excited about what they're doing. But ultimately, it boils down to how do you make people feel while they're in the workplace? Do you, can you create that culture of ownership um, where, where people, um, where they're committed to their work, they're engaged in the work, you know, and, and Gallup um, and other polling organizations have pretty consistently found that only about 25% of people are really engaged in their work. 60% are just going through the motions. Doesn't mean they're doing a bad job, but that's what they're doing is the job. And at 3 o'clock, at 5 o'clock, whatever, they're out of there. Um, and then you've got the people we refer to as vampires, the 15 or 20 percent who are actively disengaged in the work, the ones who see management and not the competing companies as as the enemy, the ones who are hanging around the coffee pot, gossiping and complaining rather than getting their work done. Wow. Uh, that, that, and, those, those stats seem a lot higher than I would have thought. You know what? Anytime I, I, I do a lot of speaking and I I'll ask, I'll show a slide with that breakout and I'll say, the, the reaction I most often get is, is that all, you know, you should see this place, 40%, 50% of people are um, sitting around complaining, whining. Wow. You know, in my observation, I think 15% is probably about accurate mm. and that about 15% of paid hours in the typical organization do go down the drain of toxic emotional negativity. And not only does that affect how well we do our work, we drag that stuff home and dump it on our families. Right. You know, if, if we can create an emotionally positive workplace experience, everybody wins.
right. but it's hard work. Well, let's talk. That's a good segue into some of the services that you offer under Values Coach. Um, uh, in, in looking at the various core services, and we'll go through some of those, um, how, how has that changed over the years from what you originally envisioned uh, for the company? Well, my original thought was to put on um, big motivational conferences, bring lots of speakers in. And, you know, what I realized is if you really want to help someone change their life, if you really want to change an organization, it takes more than a pep rally. And what I was doing was putting on pep rallies. Um, then I, I started doing a lot of speaking myself. I still do. Um, but over the last oh, eight, nine years, we've really worked hard to not just give pep rally speeches, but to give, to create resources that people could use in their personal life um, and trying to change an organization. And that's our focus now is on creating tools and resources that can have a uh, long lasting sustained impact um, on, on an individual or on the culture of an organization. Okay. The, you talk about 12 core action values. Would you provide a kind of a brief overview for our audience what this is? And it, it, you call it the graduate school for life. And uh, why should individuals attend this? And uh, um, I, I know we could probably talk the rest of the podcast about this, but could you give us an overview of what those are? Well, just very briefly, um, it's very clear from a lot of research and, you know, our own experiences that the values, your core values are um, terribly important in defining the kind of work you do and how you do that work and how you live your life. And the question I asked maybe 10 years ago is what are the values that are universal? You know, no matter what your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, no matter where you grew up. Um, and I came up with 12 of them uh, and they begin with authenticity. Nobody wants to be a fake integrity. Um, everybody wants to be seen as being honest and reliable awareness, you know, knowing who you are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, courage, perseverance. These are all personal values that nobody will dispute. And then for each value, and there are 12 of them, beginning with authenticity, ending with leadership, for each value, we have four cornerstones, which is how you put action into the value. Uh, and the, probably the most important thing I have learned, certainly the most important thing I have learned in values coach over the last oh, 15 years is this. Values are not good intentions. Values are skills. And you work on developing those skills, and it is a lifelong process. Anytime I hear somebody say, well, we don't want to teach values in our hospital, people should have learned that at home. They're selling their organization short. They're selling their people short because it is not that you have it or you don't. It's a lifelong process of getting better at living what your values are. And that begins with simply knowing what your values are. And frankly, most people don't. You know, I've asked lots of people, what are your values? And I've asked lots of audiences, raise your hand if you can tell me the values of the hospital or the company you work for, and most people can't. I see a, a lot of organizations, you know, they'll have the mission, vision, then they, they do have their core values. So you work on that from an individual level and a, you know, company level also, correct? Well, yeah, you know, very often what you see um, I wrote a book called The Florence Prescription, and it's a fictional story about a fictional hospital, and the values of this fictional hospital spell out the word care. 
And, you know, how often do you see that, that an organization says, well, let's see, care, that's a good word. Let's force fit some words into it. Hmm, compassion, accountability, respect, and excellence, those are our values. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with those values except that there's no heart in it. I mean, it's words on the wall. Mm -hmm. It's a rare organization that has really thought through the way the the classic example is Johnson and Johnson and the J and J credo where people, it really means something. It's not just words on the wall that should be self-evident. You know, what hospital would not have caring as a value? Uh, Where would you, what organization would say, no, we don't care about excellence or integrity. Um, one of our client, big insurance company we work with, the only company I know, it's it's a company called Auto Owners Insurance. It's a Fortune 500 company that no one's ever heard of or few people. They have 10 core values. And I have asked over the last three or four years, I'll walk into a cubicle, tap someone on the shoulder and say, tell me what the 10 values of this company are. And I've asked more than 10% of their workers, more than 400, maybe 500 people, just randomly Tell me the 10 values, and almost everybody gets all 10. Honesty, hard work, loyalty, the team, prudence. Uh, they, they know what they are, and they know what they are because they mean something. And as, as another example of values that are meaningful, the biggest problem that will face every hospital in the next 10 years is finding and keeping good people. We are heading, and it's not just hospitals, we are heading as the baby boom generation retires. There are not enough people coming in in the next generations. We are heading into the most serious staffing crisis that we've ever seen in this country, at least in 100 years. Wow. And yet auto owners insurance is the only company I know that has elevated loyalty to the status of being a core value. Now, that should be something that every hospital should be seriously determined to work on. And it should be a core value, earning the loyalty of our people, being loyal in return, creating a culture where people feel like owners, where they want to stay, where they're not going to leave just because they can make an extra quarter an hour somewhere else. That should be a core value. But in most places, it's not. And have you you seen this in hospitals, Joe? Have you seen some of the ones or ones that you could mention that you feel that they are really living that? Yeah, yeah. Griffin Hospital in Derby, Connecticut. Um, It is Griffin owns something called the Plain Tree Alliance, which is an organization focused on patient-centered care, putting the patient in the center. Um, Griffin has been for 10 years running now. Griffin has been on the Fortune magazine list of the 100 best companies to work for in America. Not, Not hospitals, companies. No other hospital has ever done that. Um, they pay 10% less than the prevailing wage rate in, in the Connecticut area because they're a small hospital surrounded by giants. And yet they have 400 people apply for every job that opens because they are known for being such a great place to work. And, it, and you know, we've worked with them over the years. Um, they were one of the first to adopt the 12 core action values. They ha- still have a very strong spark plug group going. We call our graduate spark bugs, because that's what we want them to do. There is a hospital that is very clear about what its values are, what it stands for, what it won't stand for. And of course, they, like everybody else, have their challenges. Um, but but it's, uh, to me, you know, I agree with Ken Blanchard, who wrote The One Minute Manager. He wrote another book called The Heart of the Leader. He said the leader's number one job is to be, to clarify 
what the values of an organization are. And then, and I would add this, to create the behavioral expectations that go along with those values. And I'll give you an example of how it is violated everywhere. I do not know of a single organization that doesn't at least implicitly say integrity is an important value to us. Not one. Um, and nobody listening to this uh, podcast would, would say, oh, no, no, integrity is really not important here. I, at least I hope. In, and yet, I don't know of a single organization, and especially not a single hospital, that doesn't have a rumor mill going. Now, when two people are talking about a third person who's not in the room, that violates the dignity of the person who's being talked about, but it also violates the integrity of the people doing the gossiping, and it frankly violates the integrity, integrity of an organization that tolerates that sort of behavior. Um, so we're, we're saying integrity is a value, integrity is important but our actions are saying not that important. And, and how do you stop that? I always called that in my career, the, you know, the water cooler talk that we sit around and, you know, some people will, you know, unless you really get people engaged, their, their heads are bobbing. Yes. Then immediately go out and say, this is all a bunch of junk. I'm not going to do it. I mean, how do you, how do you change that? Well, let's look at a, a parallel, the water cooler. 18 years ago at the water cooler, not only were we sitting around complaining and gossiping, we were smoking. <laughs> Today, we simply would not tolerate. There's not a hospital in the country where you can smoke. Um, most buildings now, you know, certainly not. We don't smoke on airplanes anymore. What we have done is we have raised our expectations of, our, of, of the people around us. And we, we don't put up with that toxic cigarette smoke in the air. Now, there were some very practical things we did. You know, in hospitals, we taught people, how do you confront a patient who lights a cigarette? We taught that. We put up signs that said, this is a no smoking area. You know, for the most part, we don't need those anymore. But for years, that was a great tool. Uh, we can do the same thing when it comes to toxic emotional negativity, which, as I mentioned in, in the book, The Florence Prescription, really is the spiritual and emotional equivalent of cigarette smoke in the air. We, we can teach people how to effectively say to somebody else, you know, we don't really tolerate gossiping in this organization. That's not who we are. Um, to say to somebody else who, who's sitting around, you know, bitching, moaning, and whining, we call that the other BMW club, um, <laughs> to say, you know, if, you ha if you're going to complain about something, let's figure out how to fix it. Um, but too often we don't teach those skills. And, you know, just as we once did with cigarette smoke, we assume, oh, well, that's just the way it is. And, and as long as we assume, oh, that's human nature, that's the way it is. You know, I, I remember people saying, well, you can't make people not smoke on a cross-country flight. You know, they'll have nicotine fits, there'll be a riot, planes will be crashing. And of course, now we know that was all ridiculous, that we were making invalid assumptions about what could be done. Uh, and I think the same is true when it comes to attitudes, behaviors, and culture in an organization. We are way too often selling ourselves short by assuming that's not something we can change. Yeah, well, I think individuals, too, um, they might be uncomfortable, you know, with it, but then they'll just allow that to go on. And, you know, I saw, you know, the quote from the Florence prescription that you have, you know, saying that, you know, there is conclusive evidence that negative emotions are physically harmful and that one negative person will drag down the morale of the entire work unit. So, you know, 
how do you instill that so that people can say, you know, I'm sorry, this is a no smoking area, or this is a non, you know, uh, area that we're going to be talking about other people, you know. We call that a no pickle zone, named after people who look like they were born sucking on a dill pickle. <laughs> well, it's, you, yeah, no, you I... the nail on the head. You teach, first of all, you begin with the leadership example. And far too often, uh, the leadership team engages in gossip and engages in complaining including complaining about the people that, that who are complaining that other people are complaining. Um, and, and you get clear about what you want your culture to be. You get clear about why people should want that sort of a culture. You know, most people don't want to be steeped in, in toxic emotional negativity all day. Um, but at, just as a vast majority of us did not like being in a room full of cigarette smoke, but we put up with it. And, you know, if you can make that change, something I often tell my audiences, if I could wave a magic wand over a hospital and for 90 days there would be no bitching, moaning, whining, complaining, gossiping, rumor mongering, finger pointing, none of this toxic emotional behavior, you would never go back. The same way we would never go back to allowing people to smoke. It just, we've, we've gotten to appreciate how, how nice life can be if we don't have to be poisoned all day long. And now we're being emotionally poisoned all day long in many places, but we haven't, we haven't made the commitment that we're going to change it. Mm. And it's not that we should do. Well, one thing I always did, you know, with the management teams that uh, I had reporting to me is that, you know, within the room, we can sit here and argue and I want to hear all the different viewpoints. It's not like you turn off um, suggestions or criticisms then you know you put that in but that we go out as a united front it's it's what i you know the water cooler stuff after because if you're not speaking up at the time so have you dealt with that with the management teams and you know ira chaliff wrote a book called the courageous follower and the theme of the book is that a, a courageous follower will will stand up to a boss when they're um before the decision is made, yes. then they'll stand up for the boss after the decision is made. Absolutely, yeah. But I think the other important thing is um, we have to be much more clear when we're arguing, when we're complaining um, about whether it's a problem or a predicament. A problem has a solution. A predicament does not have a solution. If it takes an act of Congress to change Medicare reimbursement, why complain about it? Um, why not just deal with it? You know, the first two words I heard coming out of graduate school in hospital administration back in 1970-something, six, the first two words I heard were healthcare crisis. I've been hearing it ever since. You know, when does a crisis stop being a crisis and start being, this is just, what, <laughs> this is the order of the day. This is business as usual. Um, we have a lot of problems. Let's deal with them instead of complain about them. Yeah, and I, I've always said too. With you know, if there's a problem, then think through a solution. What's your, what's the, what's the solution? Or let's you know all think together, but let's let's put it on the table. So yeah, good thoughts. I hadn't thought about the problem predicament. That's a good uh, good analogy. Um, you also work um, with a number of associations. Um, what type type of service do you offer? Association is, and how does that differ from hospital clients? 
Well, you know, obviously associations bring people together in meetings and conferences, so I do a lot of speaking for groups like that. Um, we're currently working now, uh, and because it's still in the works, I can't, I can't tell you which one, but it's a state hospital association. Um, and, and what we're going to be doing is figuring out a way to offer our training on the 12 core action values to every hospital in that state um, in a way that I don't have to personally do it, um, which is not possible. They have too many hospitals and in a way that makes it more, uh, much more cost effective but most important in a way that assures that it's going to keep going. So what we're going to do is we're going to certify people to be values coaches who have been trained to teach the 12 core action values, to teach courses on uh, building a culture of ownership. Um, they will have uh, resources to do that, you know, PowerPoint presentations and icebreaker videos and workbooks, all the things they need. But the hospital association will be a partner with us in bringing hospitals into this. Um, something else that we're launching right now, and we're we're hoping and expecting to have hospital associations join us, and we've really just started it. But you know, uh, Florence Nightingale. Obviously, people know that she was the first nurse. In fact, she defined what it means to be a nurse. She was the founding, the founder of the profession. Of, of nursing. Something that people don't know is that she was also, in a very real sense, the first professional hospital administrator, and her work during the Crimean War, in a very short period of time, she created the blueprint for the hospital as we know it today. Um, and she died in 1910. In 2010, the centennial of her death would be the perfect time for us to remember the legacy of her life and to reignite that spirit of purpose, of determination, of commitment, of compassion that, that galvanized her and a very small band of healthcare pioneers of her time, and to bring that back into the hospital of today. And so what we're doing, and we're, we're um, inviting hospital associations to help us with this, is we'd like to take the Florence Challenge to every hospital in America. And the Florence Challenge simply has three parts to it. First is get committed to a culture of ownership. And what we're encouraging is that people get a copy of the Florence prescription book and give it to every employee. And we've had about a dozen hospitals already do that, and we've had great responses. And the reason we want to do that is because it describes in detail what does it mean to be in a culture of ownership. And there are eight characteristics that you have to have. Uh, commitment, com uh, engagement in the work, you know, pride in what you're doing. The second thing is for people individually to take the self-empowerment pledge. And it's a very simple pledge. It's seven promises, one for each day of the week, having to do with personal responsibility, with personal accountability, with determination in the face of challenges. And, you know, we've, over the last 15 years, I've seen people make, and, and the word miraculous is not too strong a word, for the changes I've seen people make when they do stop waiting for someone else to empower them and they empower themselves. And if you get an entire workplace to take that pledge, it can have a hugely transformative impact. So that's the second of three elements of the challenge. And the third is join what we call the conspiracy for positivity. And that simply means not just if, if people are whining and complaining and gossiping, you get up and walk out of the room or you find a way to constructively confront those people and say, you know, this that's not 
That's not how we behave at this hospital, at this factory, at this whatever it is. Um, and for Florence Challenge, it will be hospitals. Mm-hmm. If we could get, if this is this is um, a huge dream, and you know, we know we won't get all the way there. But imagine if all four thousand some hospitals in America, and if all four and a half million people who worked in those hospitals took that to heart. We, were, we are committed to a workplace that is reflected by commitment and engagement and passion and pride. We are going to take complete responsibility for our lives. We're going to be accountable for our results. We are not going to blame other people for our problems. And we're just simply not going to tolerate toxic emotional negativity the way we no longer tolerate cigarette smoke. Imagine what a different, the healthcare crisis would go away. That's that's wonderful. Is now is the Florence Challenge? Is that something that you have on your website, or how how do people get information about that? Well, um, not yet. Uh, the if you go to my website or if you go to sparkstore.com, um, you can get the book, The Florence Prescription, which is the first of the. It really has everything in that book. Okay, uh, and that's sort of that's a roadmap for the challenge. But we really, just in the last month, have been starting to put together, what's this challenge going to look like? Um, and, and just started uh, inviting hospital associations to join with us. That's great. The, the few hospitals that we've already started working with, the, the response has been very positive. You know, people want this. It's not like you're shoving down their throat, uh, another do more with less. It's let's, let's make our workplace better by making your lives better. Let's talk about that's your most recent book. I know you're working on another one that we'll talk about, but uh, I wanted for our audience, you have such interesting titles such as The Healing Tree, A Poet, A Mermaid, and a Miracle. Then there's Never Fear, Never Quit, A Story of Courage and Perseverance. Uh, your Dreams Are Too Small, The Farmer, The Twelve Core Action Steps, Leadership Lessons, What Can what you can learn from J.R.R. Tolkien's classic works, Take the Stairs, Personal Best, 1001 Great Ideas for Achieving Success in Your Career, uh, Staying on Top When the World's Upside Down, Winning the War with Yourself, Field Manual, and then, of course, the, the Florence Prescription from Accountability to Ownership. What What is the... You've written... A number of books. What do you think is the 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 common theme, or what what has developed over the years in from writing those those different books? Is is personal accountability one of those things? Well, sure. Uh, personal accountability, not cheating yourself by settling for anemic dreams and goals because you don't believe in yourself. Um, working on yourself, you know, investing in developing strength of character and developing uh, those right brain, so-called soft skills that are usually much more important than left brain hard skills. Um, those are some of the themes. Um, probably the, the, the uh, approach I've taken in recent years with most of my work has been fiction because people love stories. You know, if I talk to somebody who's heard a talk I gave two years earlier and they, they say, oh, that was a great talk. And I say, yeah, what do you remember about it? It's almost always going to be a story. Um, so I've, um, 
and, and frankly, that's what I enjoy doing the most as well. And it's what's gotten the best response from people mm-hmm. is fictional format. The Healing Tree is a novel. It's a novel of healing, of course. Um, it's uh, the first edition is out of print, and I rewrote the book. I think it's a better book now. And we haven't published it yet, but the entire book is available online for download, and it's a free download at healing-story.com. And and it's a fun book. It's about a woman who uses poetry to um, transform a terrible tragedy into something that is meaningful. Um, There is also at the healing-story website, there's a workbook called Healing the Hospital. And it's how do you apply the lessons from this story to transforming the culture of a hospital? Another of the books you mentioned uh, is Your Dreams Are Too Small. And that one, uh, we actually recently republished it. And uh, it is almost, we're going to have to reprint it again because it's almost sold out. But that's another fictional story story. you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher, once wrote that um, fictional characters can be more real than real people. Hmm. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, when, you're, when you create a fictional character, uh, he can be purely bad or she can be purely good. They don't have to worry about babysitters and paying taxes. I mean, you can distill the character into the essence of what you're trying to get across. And I think that's the power of the business parable. That's the power of using fiction to not just tell a story, but convey an important message is that people really do relate more to stories than they do to a textbook. And and then your characters, though, I'm, I'm sure are based on your experience in working with real people. It might be even an amalgamation of a number of individuals that you put into one character. Well, you know, it's been said that you you cannot write except biographically. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully, people who write murder mysteries. That's <laughs> yeah, right. um, but of course, you know your uh, your experiences are going to influence uh, your imagination. Um, what I find is, if I'm really, if I really let the work take its own directions that sometimes these characters um, create themselves and they, they surprise me. You know, I read once if the writer's not surprised, then the reader won't be surprised. And as one example, uh, Maggie mermaid is a character in the book, the healing tree. And um, in my mind, I had this picture of what she was going to be like and what she was going to do. And, and she kept insisting that she was going to write poetry. And I've always hated poetry. I've never read it. I've never written a poem in my life um, up until working on The Healing Tree. But every morning I'd wake up with Maggie in my ear saying, you've got to make me a poet. And that's the direction that the book took. And, you know, for me, it was uh, an incredible, an incredibly rewarding eye opener because I I read an awful lot of poetry. I started writing it because Maggie insisted that I do it, and it it totally redirected the book. Um, That was not biographical because I'd never liked poetry, never read it. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but for me it was a, a beautiful growing experience, getting to know my character. And and. 
for yourself personally? I mean, I know writing a book is not an easy task in and of itself. Uh, had you written anything? Were, were all your books written after 1994, or had you done some before then? No, I had done some writing before, but never uh, only business writing. So it was all after. Got you. Uh, I did. There's a, a writer who's no longer around, but he once said, people think writing is hard. Writing's not hard. Um, you just sit down and write what occurs to you. He said, the writing is easy. It's the occurring that's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about uh, July 2010. Uh, you've got a new book coming out, All Hands on Deck, Eight Essential Lessons for Building a Culture of Ownership. Um, tell us about that book and what was the inspiration well, the inspiration was looking at, at those organizations that have that sort of a culture, um, that through good times and bad, um, they have had, they have earned the loyalty of people. Um, they've, uh, they really are, they're the companies that are built to last. And, and, and who started those companies? And what I wanted to do, and, and what I've actually just said to the publisher earlier today, is write a, a fictional story that brings to, back to life the people who started these companies. You know, uh, Hewlett and Packard, Bill and Dave, or Henry Ford, who in his early days was an incredibly enlightened and empowering leader. He oh, later he became more of a dictator, but he was an, an incredible leader early on. Mary Kay Ash, you know, brilliant leader. Tom Watson at IBM, uh, probably the first per. Well, he was. He was the first person ever to see corporate culture as a source of competitive advantage. And so what I did is I, I identified eight of those leaders who built companies that to this day we recognize for being great companies um, and wrote a story around the lessons you could learn from thinking about and studying and how, how they did it. Well, besides, so it was fun to do. Yeah, it sounds like it, it will be... Uh... Uh, looking forward to that being published. Um, besides books, you also uh, do several presentations and love your titles, The Invisible Architecture of Your Organization, The Four Dimensions of Value-Based Leadership, Honey and Glue, The Pickle Challenge, which you talked about, and Winning the War with Yourself. And then finally, What Would Florence Do? Um Maybe just briefly describe what those presentations are, and has there been one or two that have been more requested over the years than others? Well, by far, the, the two, one would be the 12 core action values or the four dimensions of values-based leadership drills down deeper into core action value number 12, which is leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and more recently, it's been one way or another, It's it's been the on building a culture of ownership that has been the most popular. And I'm, I think that's because that's something that most organizations today see as being a, uh, an imperative. You know, if you don't have that sort of a culture and you're competing with someone who does, you're going to lose. Um, the one that, one that um, honey and glue is kind of an interesting notion. Um, people use the word recruiting and retention as if it's one word. You know, we're, we're going to, we got to get better at recruiting and retention. And the truth is that those are two totally different things. They require you hitting totally different hot buttons to motivate people. You recruit with honey 
all the left brain inducements of the paycheck and benefits and, you know, your job title, all the things that are measurable. But that's not why people leave and that's not why they choose to stay. They stay because of glue of pride in the work they're doing, fellowship, feeling like they're part of a, a team of people who are friends with each other, um, feeling like their work is important. That's why they stay. And if the if if you're only focusing on the measurable benefits um, and you're, you don't appreciate that that's not what earns loyalty is paying people the most, uh, it, you're not going to have a successful organization long term. You have a weekly uh, newsletter called Spark Plug, which uh, I subscribed to uh, back when you spoke at an Ames conference, I think a few years ago. Uh, tell us about this newsletter and specifically what you like to cover and how many people uh, subscribe to it, because it is a free newsletter. Yeah, it's a free newsletter, um, and the focus is on values, uh, values at a personal level or val and values at the organizational level. And really, it's about whatever I decide to write about over the weekend before. Um, you know, I've written about courage and perseverance. Um, I've written about loyalty. Um, sometimes I tell stories. Uh, but the the central theme, one way or another, is is about values at a personal level, values at an organizational level. Um, we've got readers as you know, as you do with um, the internet today. You know, we have readers all over the world. Lots of people in healthcare because that's um, where I've spent a lot of time. But I, I never cease to be amazed at the emails I get from out of the blue, from companies I've never heard of, from <laughs> sometimes countries I've never heard of. Um, but that's what it is. It's, it's a free newsletter. Um, people can sign up at joetie.com or send me an email, joe at joetie.com, and I'll take care of it. And, and how many people do you have subscribing now? Do you know? Well, you know, it, yeah, it's uh, just shy of 10,000. Oh but my that's gosh. Such, um, that's such a, a meaning, almost meaningless number. Um, cause you know that there are people who just don't have time. So they delete it. I know a lot of people have told me I have a Joe tie file and I move it into that file and read it when I get to it. Um, but I also know that there are people who forward it on to their whole list. Um, there are people who post it on their company, uh, intranet. So, you know, how many people read it on a given Monday or Friday? And typically that's when it comes out, um, Monday and Friday, uh, I really don't know. Well, that's uh, ten thousand is a lot, and I, and I understand what you're saying. I I can say from personal experience that uh, your words have been truly meaningful to me at at various times, and it's almost like you hit exactly on what I was thinking about, or you know needed to spend more time. And I I do move it into. I have a read file, and my read file I I always get through it weekly, but I. Like those are the things I like to spend a lot of time. You know, your emails are not ones that I want to just skim over and you know file. I really like to think about them. So I, I do uh, suggest our listeners, if you're not um, uh, have a subscription to the newsletter, you find a, a lot about uh, Joe and uh, the values and the things that we've been talking about in the podcast. So it's a great a great piece, and appreciate you doing that, Joe. Um, I have one last uh, question. I know you, uh, uh, the Grand Canyon figures very prominently in your work, and I know from following you these last few years, you've made several trips, both with 
uh, clients and yourself uh, and your wife. Um, how, how did this all come about? How have you come to spend so much time in the Grand Canyon? Um, it, it seems like you get a lot of spiritual understanding and meaning from your visits. So um, tell us why this is so important in your life and work. Okay, well, it's uh, first of all, um, I, I go sometimes by myself and sometimes I'll go with friends. It's, it's not part of the business. I don't take um, clients. Um, but uh, oh, I, I think it was 1994. I had just been fired from my last real job. And um, a friend of mine and I um, went to the Grand Canyon. I'd never done any backpacking except three weeks before that I did an outward bound trip and sort of got hooked. But we, I came up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just took my breath away. And we hiked in. We spent a week uh, down in the canyon. And I've gone back every year since. And every time I do, um, I learn new things about myself. Um, it's, it's an incredible experience. You know, it's physically very demanding. Um, I'm never in the kind of shape I want to be when I go in. Um, but it's, uh, it's just, to me, it is uh, a very special place in the world. Yeah, I, I've hiked part of the way down. We just were out there with my wife and son. In fact, it was after the AMTC conference in Phoenix. We went up and spent a few days. But uh, uh, I think the other thing is it's a lot easier getting into the canyon than it is getting out because um, it's all uphill coming back out. Yeah, it depends. Um, some people, in fact, I, I find it harder going downhill, especially if you're carrying a heavy pack on your knees, right? Because it's hard on your knees, mm -hmm. um, and you, and you use muscles that you. It's hard to train for going downhill, uh, but when you're coming out, um, it can be <laughs> brutal. Yeah, <laughs> and so discouraging. You think you're, you can see it. You can see the top up there, and <laughs> you, know, you got thirty switchbacks to go, and um, it just feels like it's forever, but uh, it is. It is a stunning place. What the? And I, I'm sorry. I thought I had thought I'd seen in one of your newsletters that you could sign up to go with you into the Grand Canyon. So that's not so much. You don't do um, values coach activities. I, I know you do, um, do some videos we, from there, and and some of your writing is obviously inspired, but. Uh, yeah, we do. I do a workshop every year. I'm not sure if I'm going to this year. The only thing I do where we actually put it on, you know, we were at the hotel room and everything, um, is called Spark a Dream. And it's a two-day classroom experience uh, at Grand Canyon. Um, and typically it's in Tucson, which is the village right outside the gate. And then on the third day, we have an optional hike. And we hike along the rim. It's an eight-mile trail. We hike along the rim. And, you know, it's the, the workshop is about setting and achieving big goals and dreams. And what better place than the Grand Canyon to I be see. thinking about big goals and dreams? And that's typically late April, early May that we do that. Yeah, okay. That, that must have been what I read. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh, for the listeners, uh, Joe's mentioned a number of links. We'll have those all in the show notes uh, to Joe's site and also the uh, healing site. So um, you can pick those up um, uh, at the show notes of the broadcast. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on the podcast and sharing some of the early history of Ames and, and uh, the very, very best of luck as you continue your wonderful work uh, with Values Coach. 
Well, thank you. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, I will look forward to uh, following the people who are on your upcoming podcast. Congratulations on getting this going. It's a lot thank of you. effort. Thank you. Since Stanley Reeves has graciously allowed me to use track five as the theme song for Air Medical today, I wanted to provide a brief introduction and interview with this very talented jazz musician. Stanley is a Chicago native and is known to his peers as a true master since his exquisite production set him apart from a sea of other artists. At age six, he was drawn to his father's guitar and soon realized he had a natural passion for playing. Now Stanley is both an accomplished keyboardist and guitarist and it is no wonder why he is making a name for himself in the music industry. Stanley is presently working on songs for a new soundtrack with actress Erica Hubbard, who starred in the Cinderella Story, Save the Last Dance, and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. He is also busy working on an album titled Fingers in Action. In 2005, he started his own production and publishing company called Room Tune Publishing, which can be found on the web at www.room.com. TuneEnterprise.com. Stanley has an impressive catalog of over 200 songs ranging in form from jazz, reggae, rock, blues, and gospel. Stanley lives in the south side of Chicago with his wife and two children. Stanley, welcome to the podcast, and thank you again for allowing me to use track five as the theme song for Air Medical Today. Yes, uh, thank you. Um... Uh, track five was a uh, a song that I put together to different. I felt different uh, uh, different feelings toward the song, and uh, I'm, I'm glad someone was uh, was you know could uh, enjoy it besides myself. Well, I had searched for many different, uh, you know, sources for music because I like to have that uh, on the podcast that I do, and I wanted something real, you know, upbeat, uh, kind of a jazz uh, song, and looked through several of them. And when I did that one, of course, you have a lot of good, good songs, and have enjoyed those, but that one in particular hit me uh, that I thought would be very good for the podcast. Yes, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really pleased that someone was able to, and it just. Music, I, I actually just, you know, I think it and I feel it and I uh, produce it. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell. Well, let's go back. You said you started playing guitar when you were six years old. Tell us how you progressed through the years with your musical career. Well, my father played guitar, so I used to sneak and get his guitar. You know, I didn't realize it was, <laughs> it was a expensive guitar like Gibson and Fender, so I used to sneak and get it and start playing with it. And I would break a string, and I play with this string, and I end up maybe with just two strings on it. And I developed from that, and uh, watching him play. And there was a another gentleman that I used to watch play, uh, Mr. Lacey. And I just picked it up, and uh, ever since then, been going with it. Then I developed, you know, get into piano and other instruments. So uh, it just happened. And you know, it's, it's strange sometimes because. I really I found out that a lot of my uh, my grandfather, my great grandfather, was a musician. They played guitar, so it just I guess it's just in the genes. Yeah. Well, and you uh, besides keyboard, what other instruments do you play? Oh, I I t- dabble around with 
dabble around with drums, uh, uh, piano, organ. I even played clarinet. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and just just try to. And I think I think that's important to uh, to uh, do that because um, you know you get a chance to really know how instrument instruments should sound when you put them together. Uh, if you get a chance to uh, just just try the other instruments, and then you'll know how they actually could fit into the music. Well, then how, when you started writing, when did you start writing uh, music? Oh, I started writing, um, let's say, um, I guess around 15 or 16. Uh, it was a three uh, gentlemen that I used to, uh, we used to get together actually, it was two. It was a gentleman named Rito Manluco and Reggie Lamb. We used to get together and make songs, and we really thought we was on our way. In fact, I I found the CD thirty years ago where we was making up songs then. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, it was um it was fun, and I really started. And you know, played in a few bands, and really, um, you know, the side I was just going to go on my own and just start putting everything together myself. So you know, you know how it is in the bands. You you know you good great guys who love them, but when you start laying stuff down, we start getting kind of petty sometimes. Right, so. and and you've got a a catalog of songs, not just jazz, but you play uh, reggae and some rock blues and and also gospel music. Yes, well that came about when I was in, interested in getting a production uh, deal with a record company, and they told me that you had to be able to uh, do different types of music. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I like all kind of music, and I think a person should really listen to classical music to really get the really feel for other music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is your is your music primarily jazz? No, I, I actually call my music soul jazz. Not uh-huh. it's, it's, I like to put the still the blues scale in the, in the jazz. Yes. Soul mm-hmm. jazz. I, mm-hmm. I, I like to put a name. And some, uh, I like the jazz, but I like to put a little soul in it, you know. Well, I, I I've always was a fan of uh, Herbie Hancock. I, of course, still am. And it seems like yes, their music okay. is Im- influenced that way. At least uh, oh, track yes. five is. Yeah. Yes, uh, Herbie Hancock, um, George Duke, uh, Stanley Clark, uh, Stanley Jordan. These 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 guys are just awesome, you know. But it, it was amazing that they some of them had to do a little R and D to really get noticed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have. Uh, Two CDs that I know of, and you probably have other ones. Uh, one is called Fields. It was published in 2003. And then Fingers, it's spelled F-I-N-G-E-R-Z, Sideways, was published in 2006. Tell us about these works and uh, and any others that you have. Well, generally what I do, once I do, I put songs together, I will go out to some of the DJs and let them, you know, let the people listen to them, you know, see how they respond. And they would kind of be, oh, that's good. Well, let's see how the people respond. And people would just get up in my ass and say, who is that by? So I would take my my lead from there. I said, well, that would be a good song to put on the CD. And uh, basically, as I do, I like to see what the public think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a gentleman named Sam Chapman was very instrumental in letting me come to his uh, place, and he would uh, put the CD on uh, for the people and see the reaction. Yeah, yeah, and you're working 
also on a new CD called uh, Fingers in Action. When do you expect that one to be finished? Well, I expect it to be finished with that one. Uh, trying to make it uh, during my, uh, by the time my birthday get come around on 23rd of uh, May. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Oh, great. And, and uh, what's the uh, influence? You have several tracks that you're looking at for that? Yes, I have several tracks that I have already um, produced, but you know how it is when you have quite a few, you're trying to pick the best ones you think. And sometimes it's kind of hard because sometimes people like music that you made that you don't like. Right. So different different uh, people have told me, say, some, you know, let's put it out there and see what happens. Is it is it changed to uh, Stanley on, you know, today's world, so many things, you know, you people buy one song at a time rather than a CD. And when you're producing a CD, I would imagine you're trying to fit those songs into a sequence in, um, in how you want it to, to play out. But yet people might be buying, you know, one track at a time. Has that changed how you've done your production? Um, it, it, I like people to enjoy the music that I put out. So it hasn't changed. If they, you know, if they want to buy one of the songs, I, you know, because it's amazing sometimes. They'll say, I like track six and eight and one. And I, it makes me go back and listen to it. Uh-huh. So I try to keep a log on what they like so I can kind of maybe put something else out on that same vein. Right. Okay. So, But I think it, it, it helps a musician that uh, everybody don't come up with tracks all the time. So, But it helps. I think it's, it's a good for the music industry with musicians when they can actually put a three song or one song out there and, and people grab it. Uh, being from some, they might say the old school, you know, you used to have 15, 16, sometimes 18 songs on the CD. Uh, but um, it, it did change my perspective on it, but I still like to just give a person a package, you know. Right. I, I know you're working on uh, a soundtrack for a, a movie. Um, how does that different than producing a CD. I would imagine you're working with the producers of the movie and that song has to fit in with the scene. So how is that? Well, that was a new experience for me because I'm, I was just thinking that you get a bunch of tracks and you just send it to the people and they just match it with the movie. But as time went on, uh, you get a, a story of what the movie is about and then you try to visualize the music with it. So... At this point, it's, it's like uh, if I don't have anything for the uh, soundtrack, I'm going to be working on it, but along with the gentleman, uh, uh, Bob Williams, we'll be working on it together. Um, we will see uh, what comes about. I may have to get some other musicians with some tracks, and but um, more than likely I will have some tracks in the movie. But it's, it's, it's much different because you only have maybe, what, maybe about 30 seconds uh, of of a certain track or maybe 20 seconds before the other acts right. before the other part, the door slamming and the foot walking and different things, uh, cars. So it's just different. Even in vocals, it's different. I mean, playing music is pretty, it's easy for a person that does it all the time. But uh, when you start getting the vocals and get into soundtracks, it's, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. Now, and do you then specifically work with them and maybe suggesting uh, a track for a scene and and in particular a certain segment of that track we will be doing that uh and i would get some um tracks to see where and i have made special tracks for movies 
uh, you know, I'm a movie buff. I like to see movies, but I try to train my ear to hear the different tracks that's in the movies and to see where they go and how long they are, how they fade out and come in with something else. Uh, then you, you get your, your longest song is probably in the beginning and the end where the credits are showing. Mm, right. So, so more than likely I will be uh, probably trying to get something for the credits to uh, to the music. Uh, it's, it's You know, music is like, uh, it's, it's a feeling to me. And it's good to know to read music, but I think it's, a person is awesome when they can read it and feel it. Well, tell us about uh, track five. You had started a little bit about that, but tell us about, you know, when was that uh, song produced and what were you doing at that time? Uh, to my recording, to my records, I, I produced that song in 2002. And um, I was trying to get a, a, a jazz sound and different sounds in it. And I just heard, I was really thinking about Stanley uh, Clark in the beginning when I had the double bass. Uh-huh. And uh, it just went from there. And actually, when I listened to it recently, it was really funny. I was saying, like, wow. You know, it, it, it's well, the, the, the good thing about playing music, when you play from your heart and what you feel, you can go back and lis- listen to it and, and really be amazed at your own self. Yeah. <laughs> at your own self. Well, yeah, you did great on that one. I, I, I've listened to a lot of your tracks and, and like them, but this one in particular uh, hit me real well, too, for the for the podcast and uh, I, I again thank you so much for allowing us to uh, to use that no problem I, I appreciate you liking it and uh, maybe I have some more and, I was, and actually I was going through the files just uh, last night and I, I found some more songs in that same vein it was amazing because you know people can really raise the eyebrow on things that you do that you really don't really be paying attention to right right Well, Stanley, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. And I do hope you will come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at www.airmedtoday.com and also soon on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks again to Stanley Reeves of Room Tombs for providing his song Track 5 for use as a theme song, and please enjoy the entire piece right now. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe. Thank you.